0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. If you're a mother, you've heard the phrase, breast milk is best. But what happens if you have a low supply or a premature baby to feed? Coming up, we'll learn more about human milk depots as the fifth donation facility in the state is set to open August 30th. Also, remember last summer when scores of gypsy moth caterpillars were seen feasting on trees? they've had an impact especially in eastern Connecticut. The state forester the state forester rather will join us with an update just ahead. But first, at least 100 overdoses on the New Haven Green last week put a spotlight on the drug known as K2. Many of the victims were treated at hospitals and released. What is K2? And how should public health officials respond? You can join our conversation, the number 860 275 7266 You can email us where we live at WMPR.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us by phone now is Dr. John Douglas, Addiction Psychiatrist and Service Chief of the Outpatient Addiction Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Dr. Douglas, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me on.
0: So tell us more about K2. What is it exactly, and how is it different from marijuana?
2: Sure. So K2 is a synthetic cannabinoid or synthetic marijuana, which basically means it's a synthetic chemical that is sprayed usually onto plant matter that people use to usually smoke. And it was initially designed to stimulate the same receptor system as marijuana, But over the years, the chemical has changed dramatically, and we're now seeing a lot more different and, unfortunately, um, more severe side effects.
0: When you heard the news that there were at least 47 people, uh, up to 100 overdoses last week on the New Haven Green, what was your reaction?
2: My reaction was first, of course, how unfortunate this is, and just that initially when I heard about it, it was very surprising because overdosing on K2 is more rare. That's not a common side effect. But unfortunately, in the past two years, we have been seeing more of that in different cities around the country.
0: And so what causes these overdoses?
2: So that is a really interesting question, actually. So traditionally, with the synthetic marijuana the more severe side effects that we would see are usually people getting extremely paranoid and psychotic and they would sometimes end up being hospitalized on psychiatric wards. Overdosing was not something we usually saw and so the reason they're overdosing is actually unclear and I think really speaks to the fact that we have just these new chemicals that are really untested and the effects of which are largely unknown. Um, It also speaks to um, the possibility that these chemicals may have been mixed with um, other chemicals such as synthetic opioids like fentanyl or carfentanil.
0: And when we talk about um, synthetic, uh, again, marijuana, um, again, K2 being uh, what was uh, described by authorities as the cause of many of the overdoses last week in New Haven, there are other street names for this drug. Can you tell us more about that, Dr. Douglas?
2: Sure. Actually, there's numerous street names for synthetic marijuana. Um, probably K2 and Spice are the best, well-known. But um, there's all kinds of different names, like Black Cloud and Cloud Nine, Fake Weed, Legal Bud. Um, they, they go under a variety of different names, and. I think one thing that has been common about them in the past is they're usually sold as incense or pulp or marked as products not for human consumption, all in a way to try to avoid regulation.
0: So right now, this is unregulated by the DEA, is that right?
2: Well, actually, so currently, these... Chemicals are technically illegal. Since 2012, there was a law put in place that does make them illegal. Um, They used to be before 2012, they were completely unregulated and you could buy them in convenience stores or at gas stations. Um, But as their abuse has increased and the problems with them has increased, they, they are illegal, but they are still widely available.
0: Uh, when we talk about, again, these uh, overdoses uh, on, the, on the green, and we talked about um, how um, it's getting uh, potentially stronger over the last few years, can you walk us through, you know, how emergency responders are expected um, to respond when they see someone possibly um, dealing with overdose symptoms? I understand uh, large amounts of Narcan were used. Uh, I'm just, well, if you could walk us through what happens uh, in this kind of scenario where you see mass overdoses uh, going on around you.
2: Yeah, so these kinds of scenarios always really challenge any sort of emergency response team. And I think from what I read in the news, the teams that responded did a fantastic job. Um, but usually what happens is people will see usually people um, falling over or, or um, nodding out where they just seem unresponsive or they're becoming unconscious or staggering around. And they'll call the emergency response team and they'll show up and then they'll assess the person if they're really losing consciousness and looks like they're having trouble with breathing or, or look like they're in bad shape, they'll usually give them Narcan with, with, with the assumption that they are overdosing on an opioid, like heroin or prescription pain pills. Um, in this particular case, they gave the Narcan and the people didn't really respond to it right away. I, I did hear later when they got to uh, the ER, some of them, they gave them stronger doses and they did respond to that. Um, and so when someone is not responding to Narcan, that could mean one of two things. It could mean that what they're overdosing on is not opioid based, or they have an opioid in their system that is binding extremely strongly to their system that is not able to be um, easily treated by the Narcan. Mm-hmm.
0: I think uh, there was concern that um some of the K2 um from last week's mass overdoses might have had fentanyl in it but NPR reported uh police um have said the um some initial test results is that this K2 was was uh, laced with something called fuminaka or can you talk about that at all what that chemical is
2: Fuminaka you know actually that's that's something that I have not really heard of, and so I can't really speak a lot to that. But if it is, it may have an opioid component to it, which would explain why people are overdosing and having similar responses to as if it was fentanyl or something else. But I think what's really important to understand is that these chemicals – Are changing all the time and they're always being mixed with something new or they're modifying the chemical in different ways in in attempts to trying to avoid the regulation part of it and also in just trying to augment the chemical and give people a more intense high Mm -hmm. and so it is it is a field that is constantly changing and unfortunately very hard for treatment professionals to keep up with.
0: On the phone with me is Dr. John Douglas, addiction psychiatrist and service chief of the Outpatient Addiction Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. As we talk about, again, these mass overdoses that happened on the New Haven Green uh, late last week uh, because uh, many of them took uh, K2 uh, and it caused many of them to go to the hospital. Um, and it was something that drew people's attention because there were multiple overdoses happening um, around uh, EMS and other uh, personnel at, uh, last week when they tried to. To respond. So, uh, Dr. Douglas, again, when we see something like this happening, uh, again, when we hear that K2, um, the way it's being uh, manufactured, the the chemical components are stronger, how should public health officials be responding?
2: So. Public health officials, I think in an emergency situation, they responded exactly as they should have. You show up, you assess the people, you get them, the, them to the ER, you stabilize their vital signs. And then and then I think the next step, which unfortunately is, is harder, is you're trying to engage them in getting treatment for their addiction. And... That is a collaborative process between the patient and the treatment system. So you're trying to work with the, p- the patient to get them motivated to want to make a change and help them recognize that the path they're on is quite destructive and very dangerous. Mm-hmm.
0: I understand the uh, president's nominee for drug czar will be in New Haven later today. Uh, Governor Daniel Malloy and others will be uh, joining him, and they'll be talking about, uh, I guess, their hope to reverse cuts to drug abuse spending. Uh, but are there other ways to be talking about this issue beyond um, the the funding that's available uh, to communities, in your, in your view? Well, I think that
2: one thing that came out from the overdoses that i thought was very interesting is that several of the people were overdosing multiple times so we had over 100 different overdoses but that included some people overdosing three and four times according to um, the officials who were on the scene and that actually is unfortunately a common scenario where when people are struggling with addiction They really do have a loss of control, where when they get a substance that is so powerful that makes them overdose, unfortunately for many, that is not a warning sign that, oh, my gosh, this is dangerous. That is a sign that, hey, I really got my money's worth out of that, and it was so strong I almost overdosed. If I go back and use it again, I'll maybe use a little less, um, but I can get the same high. And so there's this addicted mentality of thinking that puts people in real danger, Mm.
0: Uh, so as uh, New Haven and other towns um, continue to discuss uh, this problem, um, you know, what are some takeaways for them on how to, uh, you know, address addiction within uh, their communities?
2: So I think the first step for anyone, if you're concerned about a loved one or, um, or someone you um, just to see that doesn't seem to be doing well, the first step is really to encourage them to get evaluated. The first step for anyone to get help is to get into the treatment system. And you can start at a variety of different places. You can start with a psychiatrist. um, You can start with a counselor. But you really just want to let someone know that you're struggling. And then um, from there, they'll help you get into a program and help determine what is the most appropriate level of care for you. Mm.
0: Uh, we were talking a lot about K2, but are there other drugs that uh, parents should be um, watching out for, um, other uh, drugs that you think aren't getting as much attention um, in terms of people um, abusing them?
2: Yeah. So I think uh, there's a common idea in uh, in the public sometimes that you can be addicted to one substance but not another. And when you, when you work in the profession, you really do treat addiction as a general risk. So once you're addicted to one thing, you're at risk of becoming addicted to multiple different substances. And I think one thing that really stands out to me when you have these kinds of tragedies is people tend to really focus on the the substance that was causing the tragedy. And I think this happens a lot with the opioid epidemic. But I think what people are not talking about a lot is the biggest killers of people with addiction are still alcohol and cigarettes. So addiction really affects people in a wide or in in a lot of different ways. And the substances that are abused most commonly are still causing most of the problems. Mm.
0: And then in terms of when we're talking specifically about K2, and I mentioned advice to parents, you know, how readily accessible um, are these drugs? Can they just be bought over the Internet? And where are they coming from?
2: So these drugs are very accessible. And you mentioned the Internet and the Internet is certainly a major place that a lot of people are getting K2 spice and opioids and a variety of different substances. You can even, on the Internet now, you can have cocaine and heroin delivered to your house through the mail system. And so that, that's how people are ordering them a lot of the times. As far as like K2 and spice go, traditionally, these are chemicals that were manufactured usually overseas. A lot of the research points to China, but they really can be developed in any place, and I'm sure some of them are made here in the United States.
0: Oh, often, the again, the attention on New Haven because of these mass overdoses, Dr. Douglas. Is this something that municipalities should be thinking about preparing uh, for this happening again, or was this an isolated incident?
2: Well, it, it definitely has happened multiple times in different cities. So we are seeing overdoses on K2 um, around the country now. Um, as far as preparing for it, the, the response is is really you're looking to support someone's basic vital signs and, and, and basic body functions where they're able to breathe and their circulatory system is working. And so the response that you prepare for uh, in the emergency setting, I think people are really that, that's a standard procedure that people are handling very well. I think the part where we could use improvement is how we approach addiction treatment and how we battle the stigma of people battling with addiction that is all too often a barrier for them to engage in our treatment system. Mm.
0: Meanwhile, uh, first responders have Narcan uh, as their uh, to use when they encounter individuals that are possibly overdosing. Are there concerns about the supply being low across the
2: state? You know, there, there's always. There, I think even in this particular overdose, I think they were running low on Narcan. But as, as you pointed out, you know, they, the people weren't really responding to Narcan in the first place, and so having Narcan available is critical. And I do think our um, our leaders and our the people and our um, emergency response teams are very aware that Narcan needs to be available. Definitely, I think it should be something standard in the training of emergency response people of police officers, they should know how to use that. And really, it, it is an easy substance to use. Um, and we, I often give trainings for parents and, and people in the community so they can have it available too. And I think the, the more widespread we can make Narcan, that will definitely help um, it be more available if you see someone who may be suffering from an overdose.
0: Again, Dr. John Douglas is addiction psychiatrist and service chief of the Outpatient Addiction Program at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Dr. Douglas, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Up next, we're going to get an update on how invasive insects are impacting the state's tree canopy. Are you noticing more dead trees in your neighborhood? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nolpeth Last summer, you may remember the sheer number of gypsy moth caterpillars on trees around the state. Depending on where you live, the caterpillars seem to be everywhere, on your car, your patio, all over your driveway. As the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection or Deep described the insect invasion on its website, they were obnoxious. Well, now the impact of this particular invasive insect is being seen, especially throughout eastern Connecticut. Are you noticing more dying trees near where you live? Join the conversation, 860 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to the show Chris Martin. He's state forester for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Chris, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So tell us a little bit about the impact of the gypsy moth caterpillar. It's something that, again, residents heard a lot about last year, but they may be seeing the impact come now.
1: Yes, we've had uh, two to three years consecutive years of dry springs, and that allowed the caterpillar uh, population to explode. Uh, The consecutive years of defoliation coupled with the drought um, has met the demise of many trees in eastern Connecticut. Mm
0: So when we're talking about trees, specifically oak trees or all kinds of trees?
1: Mostly oak. Uh, The hardest hit species has been white oak. Um, That is a preferred food source for the gypsy moth caterpillar. But there's a variety of oaks that were impacted heavily and other um, non-target species of trees also. Mm. Uh, But the the consecutive years of um, defoliation, the trees have not been able to recover. And um, we're seeing a lot of gray ghosts out in the green forest these days. Mm. And it's because those trees are dead.
0: You mentioned a dry spring, so walk us through um, how that uh, impacts or allows the gypsy moth caterpillar to uh, you know, cause so much destruction.
1: Well, there's, um, there's a naturally occurring fungus in the soil, uh, a mega fungus, and brought over to the United States and Japan, it laid latent um, for 80 so years, and then in 1989, we had a very wet spring and a gypsy moth outbreak, and we saw massive die-offs of the gypsy moth The same thing occurred in 2017. Uh, The wetness of the spring came late, late May, early June. Uh, Caterpillars had already done their damage, but we did see a massive die-off, not only in Connecticut, but Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Unfortunately, some of the gypsy moth had already gone into the moth stage, and therefore we had some remnant populations this year.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about the weather lately. It's been kind of rainy, but it was drier much earlier a couple months ago.
1: Yeah, we the rain came a little late um, this year in May, but um, it was effective uh, for the most part. And the population really had crashed the year before, so mm-hmm. there wasn't that much um, defoliation occurring this mm-hmm. year.
0: And the gypsy moth uh, has been around for a long time in the state?
1: Yeah, first discovered in the early 1900s, um, was actually brought into Massachusetts as part of a, an experiment for the uh, silkworm industry, and um, unfortunately got loose mm-hmm. and uh, made its way into Connecticut, and has actually expanded, you know, eastward through Pennsylvania into Missouri.
0: Mm-hmm. So we started the, the conversation talking about uh, the, the trees on the eastern side of the state, a lot of them that are dying. So what happens then?
1: Well, um, Lots of things. I mean, there's lots of options for homeowners or woodland owners um, to consider. One is to let it be. You know, a dead tree is not necessarily a bad thing. It's good for habitat, wildlife. Uh, But if that dead tree poses a risk, if it uh, falls down or starts to fall apart, the branches, then you really want to, you know, pay attention and uh, make a plan. It's a good time of year to make a plan right now because um, prior to leaf fall, it's very evident if the tree is alive or dead. And trees that have not releafed which they will do um, earlier in the summer. They have not relieved. They are not going to. Uh, so now's the time to uh, consider what your course of action is going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. From the state perspective, um, how much of these trees uh, is a responsibility of the state to uh, remove?
1: Well, certainly our DOT is working hard on state roads as well as town um, crews removing trees close to the road that pose a risk. And um we're working in concert with DOT, helping them store some of the material temporarily. We like to see the larger bowls of the trees that are removed, reused, and made into a usable product, to mm-hmm. store up that carbon long-term, like furniture, flooring, cabinetry. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make lemonade out of lemons. Um, but uh, a lot is going to be you know, chipped and maybe used for home heating fuel you know, for heating sources.
0: Uh, Chris Martin is in studio with us here in Where We Live, state forester for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. As we talk about uh, the long-term impact of uh, the gypsy moth caterpillars that have devastated uh, a lot of uh, the canopy around the state, specifically in eastern Connecticut, they're seeing a lot of of dying uh, oaks. And if you're seeing that uh, where you live, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned that um, residents can see if a, a tree is dying uh, at this time of year specifically. That can be costly, though, depending on how many trees they have around. Are there any you know, ways to, to help residents, or is this something that they have to foot the bill?
1: Unfortunately, um, they're on the hook. Uh, the property owners, uh, those trees need to come down. Um, their best course of action, of course, is to get uh, several quotes from reputable tree removal companies, um, make sure they have insurance to company, and then Uh, if you're going to enter into a contract, have it be a written estimate, uh, itemized bill, and then um, check those references. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's going to be some heavy costs to property owners that have to have those trees removed. Mm
0: -hmm. Is this something that's been, I guess, uh, allocated in your budget and DOT's budget to deal with uh, as we hear about the budget crunch over the last several years? How Uh, much of a pain has this become?
1: It's a fairly large inconvenience. Um, We haven't received any special allocations for the dead tree removals. Um, Our parks crews are working every day, you know, removing hazardous trees in our state parks. And in our state forests, we're trying to salvage those trees and sell them um, to a usable product prior to them being too far gone. Uh, A a real dead tree that starts to deteriorate cannot be sold for lumber, Mm -hmm. per se. So, We're trying to minimize the impact by addressing it aggressively.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that sometimes leaving a dead tree as is can help uh, certain uh, habitats. But what about um, the fact that when you have a lot of these trees dying, how does that impact a certain species um, adversely?
1: Well, so one of the things that we're concerned about, uh, certainly in the woodland areas where we have a lot of dead trees, is it'll give um, an advantage to invasive species, Uh, bittersweet, and a variety of other um, Japanese silt uh, grass. So, that filtered sunlight that comes in, that increased sunlight without um, an aggressive approach where you can have a flush of root new regeneration that outcompete the deer uh, will hopefully. And we're concerned that we're going to have more invasive species problems. Mm.
0: Uh, You'd also mentioned that there was this fungus uh, that's naturally occurring that can help, but it depends upon uh, the weather conditions. What are some other ways to tackle the uh, gypsy moth so that this doesn't happen again in future years?
1: Well, we've lived with gypsy moth for, you know, almost 100 years now. And people do a variety of things. They put burlap around the bowls. um, They scrape off egg masses. And those are all, you know, good, good efforts. But um, some folks get disappointed that they don't see the results they anticipated because the gypsy moth caterpillar will lay eggs right up to the tippy top of the tree. And we're not recommending people climb up their trees to scrape off egg masses. Uh, There is some treatments from arborists, licensed arborists that can treat specific trees um, and you can spray. Uh, But as far as widespread programs, it's not much we can do.
0: You mentioned spraying. Aerial spraying, is that a, um, something that's an option, and is that a hard sell in certain uh, communities?
1: It is a hard sell. There was an effort in southeastern Connecticut to look it, into that, and uh, because the, the mosaic of land ownership is so small, um, you could have several landowners wanting to do spray, aerial spraying, but then if you have one that doesn't, with the required setbacks for the spraying, it really makes it impractical.
0: Uh, you can join our conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Bob is calling from Stafford. Bob, go ahead with your question or comment.
1: Hi, thanks for uh, taking the call. Um, I'm just wondering about next year and uh, all through my neighborhood, you know, there's egg masses everywhere. And um, I understand there is uh, kind of an oil that could be spread on the egg masses to uh, essentially suffocate them. And I'm wondering if you have any information on that. There is a, a dormant oil that you can spray. It's kind of a waxy substance. Um, I, would, I would suggest contacting a licensed arborist for the effectiveness of that. Um, other th- also um, take a close look at the egg masses. There are some remnant egg masses from previous years. They're going to be a darker discolored um, camel coat color. The newer ones are going to be brighter and lighter colored.
0: Oh, we were talking about, again, uh, these trees specifically on eastern Connecticut that are dying. When we look long term, when we look at our forested lands, you know, what's one of the, I guess, the um, something that people sell about Connecticut is uh, the way that our state looks and the uh, sheer quantity of trees. People like having them around. But if you're not able to tackle this problem, I mean, what do you see long term as the state forester? Is this just something like an ebb and flow or, or should we be concerned?
1: Um, I'm optimistic. You know, Connecticut's forests are some of the most diverse in the country. We're kind of in the um, transition zone from Appalachian hardwoods to northern hardwoods, and so our, our trees, our forests are incredibly resilient. Uh, we've seen disturbances like this before, um, and we still have many, many trees. In fact, our growth rate to removal ratio is five to one, so we are growing five more times trees than we are removing on an annual basis, so that's actually aging our forest. Um, in fact, we don't have enough young forest in the state, and this will help perpetuate young forest, these patches of dead trees.
0: When we look at uh, oaks uh, throughout our state, um, is this something, do you see that we may not see oaks in the near future because of the, the gypsy moth, or just like you said, we're just replanting and trying to replenish?
1: Yeah, the so the species distribution in Connecticut is shifting away from oak, um, kind of naturally over time we have to think back in Connecticut's landscape to the late 1800s um and before that where much of Connecticut was deforested either through agriculture or charcoal making and that wholesale cutting of all trees really promoted a lot of oak regeneration oaks a sun-loving tree um, so over time those oaks have you know grown some have been harvested some of just died for natural reasons and we see more and more red maple and black birch taking over the forest so i do think we'll have always have a component of oak but it's going to be over time it'll be reduced
0: Mm. Uh, with residents who are able to take down dying trees uh, near where they live are there specific trees that you would recommend that they plant
1: well we've been on a big uh, campaign right tree right place and so you want to try to picture that tree that you plant in its full maturity and it may not be the same species that you remove. Uh, if it's uh, near buildings or wires, you don't want to plant a tree that's going to grow 50 to 60 feet tall. Uh, and you may want something that's going to give um, more flowers or a fruit. Uh, so I think there's a lot to consider uh, when you replant a tree. Exactly, you know, thinking long term, what will that tree develop into?
0: Uh, we've been focusing on what we're seeing in eastern Connecticut, but this is something that um, is also seen uh, in Rhode Island as well. How do you work uh, among other, with, with other states to deal with this problem?
1: So we do work very closely uh, with the Department of um, Environmental Protections, both you know, the equivalents in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and, and the foresters, the field foresters and folks at the director level are in constant contact and comparing notes. Um, We're often helping each other out with technical information and sharing that amongst state agencies. So, you know, what we want to have is a consistent message. Um, We are relatively small geographically, southern New England certainly, and um, being able to, uh, you know, commiserate, but also uh, get good advice from our colleagues is very beneficial.
0: We focused a lot on uh, the gypsy moth uh, population, but we know there are other invasives that are in our state, including the emerald ash borer. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and uh, concerns uh, with uh, dealing with the impact of that insect?
1: Yes, emerald ash borer, another uh, gift from Asia <laughs> to our forests. Um but that is uh, that is taking its toll, certainly in western Connecticut now, where um, there are many ash trees that have already died uh, from the infestation, which, you know, dates back several years now uh, and was probably in the state three to five years before we even saw it. It's a very small insect, uh, and it does take a few years for the trees to actually succumb to the outbreak. Now, that is marching eastward, and we are anticipating what we're seeing in, in western Connecticut as far as ash mortality to mimic itself in Eastern Connecticut in the next few years.
0: So when you're thinking about ways to deal with this and and other invasives, uh, where does the money come from? Do you rely on federal support? Is there enough?
1: So we always would like more, um, but uh, our USDA Forest Service partners and um, work with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station uh, and the DEEP for core funding allocated annually, And that's based upon performance on what we do with that money from previous years. We report a lot of information back to the USDA Forest Service. So that's probably the most critical component of financing. We have also get good support uh, in-state for staff from uh, general allocated funds uh, to address these issues and provide the information that the public's looking for. Uh, we, We depend more and more on our website and technical bulletins to get the information out to folks than ever.
0: Uh, we talked about defoliation, uh, specifically in Eastern Connecticut. Any concern that this will increase the risk of more um, fires with, with drought?
1: Well, I think there might be a slight increase. Um, Connecticut doesn't burn a lot compared to other states, thankfully. Um, I would disagree with the fact that we have an asbestos forest, which some people refer to it as. Uh, when we do have fires, if there's a lot of large woody debris on the ground, uh, they could become more problematic to put out. They're longer lasting, they take a lot more effort.
0: And earlier you had mentioned um, some tips for residents, again, if they have these dying oaks on their property. Um, who's? How do you know that the person you're hiring isn't you know, insured, what questions should you be asking? Again, because it is, a, uh, it is costly to take these trees down.
1: Sure, so um, reputable contractor, mm-hmm. and uh, they should have proof of insurance, uh, they should readily give you references, Three references, preferably, and call those references. Uh, never pay in advance. That's just definitely a no-no. And uh, get that written estimate. And and I think most importantly, um, communication. You know, what are the expectations of the contractor and the property owner? What is the place going to look like when they get done? Is the property owner going to put some sweat equity into the project? Are they going to mm-hmm. keep some of the wood, stack the brush themselves, or do they want everything cleaned up like the tree never existed, including stump grinding? Mm-hmm. Also, um, you want to take measures to protect your property during the removal process. Yard trees are often, you know, surrounded with infrastructure, whether it be driveway, paved stones, or underground utilities, and these are all things to consider and also impact the cost of the removal.
0: Have you been hearing from residents? Are they calling deep uh, with questions or concerns?
1: We do. Um, we get, Although the number of calls have, uh, re- have been reduced recently, but um, during the height of the infestation, um, in fact, we did a social media um, experiment when those all those caterpillars died off, and we asked folks to report where they saw those caterpillars dying. And it caught, created quite a bit of frenzy on our Facebook page, actually. We, had, we were overwhelmed with comments, uh, but it was a very useful experiment. Uh, we were able to create a map and show how that uh, mamega fungus was working through the state. I think the residents are fairly well informed um, on the impacts of the gypsy moth, though.
0: And we have one more call before we had to break. Eric's calling from Lebanon. Eric, go ahead.
1: Yeah, Hi. uh you had a caller, he dialed in about uh
3: methods to get rid of uh gypsy moth eggs. And um uh a UConn professor that uh consults with the uh uh State of Connecticut recommended canola oil as a as a method of uh getting rid of uh you know, killing the uh, egg masses. Also, I was wondering if the state would ever do some kind of citizen science thing, where they'd educate um, homeowners or whatever to go around and, and kill the uh, the lower egg masses on the trees.
0: Good questions, Eric from Lebanon. <laughs> go ahead, uh, Chris.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a a, a great effort um, to remove those egg masses. I, I recall it actually. I was in Boy Scouts. We used to get um, a award for who collected the most uh, egg masses in the coffee cans type thing. Uh, but it's um, if the tree is isolated and stands alone by itself, that method can be successful, but oftentimes our trees are connected canopy to canopy, and the egg mass removal effort, although it can be great, um, oftentimes does not get the results that are desired.
0: And as far as the Citizen Science Project, this is something that um, maybe could be seen further down the line? or
1: Oh, certainly, yeah. If there's volunteer groups that want to get together and do that, um, you know, looking closely at trees... Uh, has other benefits. You know, you may find something else. Um, you know, There's another critter lurking nearby, the Asian longhorn beetle, that we definitely want, don't want to see in this state, please. Uh, but it's the folks that are on the ground. It's usually not the professionals that report these things on the onset. So the more eyes on the trees, the better. And if it's engaged in an effort to remove egg masses, then that's fantastic.
0: I want to thank Chris Martin again, state forester for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Chris, thanks very much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nopith Up next, human milk depots are increasing in the state. Why the need? We're going to tell you more after the break. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is the Catholic Church facing a historic crisis? On the next Where We Live, we discuss systemic abuse within the church after the latest news out of Pennsylvania, where a grand jury report found more than 1,000 children were abused by Roman Catholic priests over the past 70 years. Are you a practicing Catholic? How has this crisis affected your relationship with your faith? You can join our conversation. That's tomorrow. Now, if you're a parent, you've most likely heard the phrase, breast milk is best. But what happens if your supply is low or you have a premature baby to feed? Later this month, a human milk depot will open in the greater Hartford area. It will be the fifth donation facility in the state. Now, what is a milk depot? For more on that, joining us by phone is Marissa Merlot, lactation consultant for Yukon Health's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh, Marissa, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So I mentioned this is the fifth donation facility. Uh, So tell us about uh, the need for it. Um, I personally see the
4: need for it, actually. Um, My background is nursing, and I worked here in the NICU at UConn Health. Um, And the health benefits of breast milk are numerous. Um, We don't have a long enough time to actually discuss them, Um, but especially for any infant that's born premature.
0: Uh, So maybe tell us a little bit about why breast milk uh, for a baby born premature, why it's necessary versus formula. Um, Mom's milk is
4: obviously always the number one choice. Um, Because these babies are born prematurely, these moms are undergoing a lot of stress and sometimes are unable to produce enough milk for the babies. Um, Because of that, second best is um, donor human milk. Um, One of the highest... uh, Negative effects of being born prematurely is something called necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, NEC is very dangerous for a baby and can actually be reduced by up to 80% with receiving donor human milk versus premature formula.
0: So that condition you mentioned, uh, uh, the breast milk is easier to digest? Absolutely,
4: it's, it's much easier to digest.
0: Any um, formula is actually based on cow's milk
4: um, and the easiest thing for a baby to digest, a human baby, would be
0: human milk. Mm. Now, I mentioned, uh, tell us more about this depot opening uh, at, I think it's August 30th. It's going to be in the greater Hartford area. The first one that's actually located at a hospital?
4: Um, in Connecticut, this is
0: the first hospital-based um, milk
4: depot. Um, the other four that are in the state of Connecticut are actually um, one is in Danbury and the other ones are in the southern part of the state. So this will actually reach a large portion of this, uh, the greater Hartford area and enable moms to be able to bring their milk here um, so that we can ship it out to the milk bank in Massachusetts for pasteurization and processing.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I know um, some of our listeners may be listening wondering, you know, is it uh, safe to be sharing breast milk uh, if you know, it's not between the biological mother and a baby? So walk us through that. That's First, the screening process and then how it's uh, made safe.
4: Correct. Um, it is obviously a fluid from a human. So it does. Um, we have to go through certain testing to ensure the safety and efficacy for the babies. Um, moms are first screened with a phone call. Um, medical questionnaires are filled out Um, actually they need to get the okay from not only mom's physician to donate the milk but also um, the pediatrician so that mom can prove that she has indeed extra milk um, for donation once that's complete mom goes for a blood test um, so that she's screened for certain communicable diseases and then um, she is cleared to donate her milk And then once the milk is gotten to the bank, it actually goes through additional testing and pasteurization to ensure that there's no bacteria in the milk.
0: Marissa Merlo is on the phone with me, lactation consultant for Yukon Health's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as we talk about the fifth uh, human milk depot to open at the, uh, in the state of Connecticut, I believe, uh, next week. Uh, joining us also on the phone now is Jan Ferraro, Director of Education at, at Celeron. And Jan, uh, you um, helped uh, open up, I think, one of the first uh, milk uh, depots in the state along the southern part of the state. Can you tell us more?
3: Good morning. Yes, it was actually a terrific thing for us in February of 2016. Since Aceleron is the largest breast pump provider here in Connecticut, our business model was a little different. We just didn't give the mom the pump and say, good luck to you. We actually offered mom ongoing support after she had her baby. When a lot of her questions come up about pumping and breastfeeding, through those conversations, because it isn't such a long relationship we have with these moms, it started to come up that these moms had an excess of milk. And they really just wanted a place to donate it. And uh, we were very lucky to have a good relationship with Mother's Milk Bank Northeast, and uh, we put a depot right here in our Guilford office. And so far, since February of 2016, this Guilford office alone has gotten over 14,000 ounces of donated breast milk. Mm.
0: That's a a lot of ounces. And uh, when you have uh, looked at the number of people that are willing to donate, um, you know, I'm curious if um, any of this milk would go to, uh, you know, a mother that has a full-term baby or is it just uh, for uh, premature babies?
3: So the bulk of the milk is for our premature population because, as Melissa stated, their little digestive systems can simply do much better when they're given human milk. Uh, They always say human milk for human babies. Um, Of course, we have, you know, instances in the Mother's Milk Northeast certainly gets requests for babies that are full-term who may be compromised or who moms maybe uh, can't produce breast milk or maybe it's an adoption scenario. And Mother's Milk Bank Northeast does a very good job of uh, providing for those moms when they can. Uh, It's a little bit different than our premature population, but certainly they do what they can when they can.
0: And Marissa, the same thing uh, with uh, the Milk Depot about to open uh, next week, just for premature babies?
4: Um, Actually... It's very similar to what Jan has said. Um, It's distributed from the milk uh, bank in the Northeast in Boston. So it is available for... NICUs across the Northeast, and addition, uh, private moms who just want to give their babies a little bit of extra human milk.
0: So if uh, we have uh, some listeners who are interested in uh, donating uh, their milk, uh, maybe they don't need it or anymore in terms of, of how they want to go about uh, you know, dropping it off. I mean, can you walk us through the process again?
4: Absolutely. If they um, have extra milk. I'd love to take it from them. Um, They can reach out to me directly um, and I can, or they can actually just contact the milk bank Northeast in Massachusetts and they'll go through the initial screening process. Um, Once moms have received permission and has completed the screening process, they get their ticket number and then we can arrange a delivery time for
0: me to accept their milk. Jan Ferraro, uh, for you as well, uh, for mothers along uh, the shore, if they want to donate, uh, how do they go about doing that?
3: Yes, yeah, so actually, Marissa brings up an excellent point. The best place probably to start is Mother's Milk Bank Northeast to go on their website. It'll, or they can call the, and you know, the number will be on the website. They can call directly and start the process of becoming a registered donor. It's actually a quick process, usually done a pretty short amount of time once they become a registered donor same thing they just give me a call they email me and we just set up a time for them to come drop off their milk and here uh, we usually get it shipped out typically the same day that they drop it off so the processing of the you know of the milk at the milk bank starts pretty pretty quickly
0: Marissa, you mentioned your nursing background earlier. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about why breast milk is more desirable for babies. I understand the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that if, if they can, babies be exclusively breastfed for a minimum of six months. Tell us more about what a, a baby is getting from this, uh, this milk that helps them grow and their immune system as well.
4: Yes, that's actually the most important because babies will thrive on formula as well, um, but the long-lasting, lifelong um, immunological benefits that are in breast milk is something that you will not get from formula. Um, We consider mom's colostrum, which is that early breast milk, baby's first vaccine. Um, It's lifelong benefits that are going to carry with them. What many moms aren't aware of actually, though, is... By providing breast milk and by breastfeeding, mom actually gets lifelong benefits as well. Her risks of developing breast and ovarian cancer are drastically reduced the longer that mom provides breast milk.
0: Are there uh, misperceptions about breastfeeding? I'm just curious uh, what your both of your uh, takes are on that. Um, we know recently uh, President Trump was in the news uh, with, uh, again, uh, this um, resolution of the United Nations Health Assembly be, uh, being defeated to support breastfeeding, and President Trump tweeting that um, you know, the U.S. strongly supports breastfeeding, but we don't believe women should be denied access to formula. Many women need this option because of malnutrition and poverty. I was wondering if you could both weigh in on the misperceptions.
4: Um, Unfortunately, that statement really just shows Donald Trump's ignorance regarding breastfeeding. Um, Yes, of course, access to formula should be permitted. um, But in areas with malnutrition and poverty, Breast milk is actually the best source of nutrition for an infant. If we run the risk of them making formula with contaminated water, um, these inf- these infants can be very very ill. Um, and what better nutrition for them except breast
3: milk? And it's readily available and free. <laughs> mm. Jan. And also, I, I think one of the misconceptions that moms think that they're not going to be able to make enough breast milk for their baby. Mm-hmm. And Marissa, I'm sure you will agree that moms make plenty of breast milk for yeah. their babies. The body knows how much to make and the best way to make breast milk is continuing to get that baby to breast so that, you know, your body says, hey, let's make some more breast milk for this baby.
0: Mm-hmm. And Jan, uh, because uh, again, you're Director of Education at Acceleron, um, for working mothers out there, you know, that's where the, the breast pump is also important.
3: It is incredible. Yeah, the Affordable Care Act uh, provides that all moms who are breastfeeding uh, should have a breast pump covered by their insurance. Um, there are many. We carry here at Acceleron all the leading you know brands that moms like. And all pumps actually are not alike. So what we're trying to do is you try to help mom find the pump that's going to work best for her and her needs. So um, I think a lot of moms are maybe unaware that breast pumps are covered by their insurance. I still see them on baby registries when we're planning showers. Uh, so it's a little learning curve to say, you know what, you don't have to put this on your registry. This is going to be covered by your insurance. And then coming to a company like Acceleron where we can help mom pick out the pump that's going to work best for her for when she needs it. Uh, we always feel that we'd love to have the baby at breast most often and have the pump as a backup for when she needs it.
0: Jan Farrar again, Director of Education at Acceleron. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Marissa Merlo, Lactation Consultant for Yukon Health's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So Marissa, starting August 30th, you'll be, begin accepting donations? Absolutely. We're actually having a ribbon-cutting ceremony on August 30th at 2 p.m., and I welcome any
4: and all pre-registered donors to come on down and offer us their milk.
0: And tell us again the location.
4: The location is at John Dempsey Hospital at UConn Health, um, 263 Farmington Avenue in Farmington, Connecticut.
0: Marissa, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown, and special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And you can learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.